Fallen Leaves by Henry David Thoreau. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Fallen Leaves from Excursions by Henry David Thoreau. Autumn. LibriVox Coffee Break Collection Number Nine. By the sixth of October, the leaves generally begin to fall in successive showers after frost or rain, but the principal leaf harvest, the acme of the fall, is commonly about the sixteenth. Some morning at that date there is perhaps a harder frost than we have seen, and ice formed under the pump, and now, when the morning wind rises, the leaves come down in denser showers than ever. They suddenly form thick beds or carpets on the ground, in this gentle air, or even without wind, just the size and form of the tree above. Some trees, as small hickories, appear to have dropped their leaves instantaneously, as a soldier grounds arms at a signal, and those of the hickory, being bright yellow still, though withered, reflect a blaze of light from the ground where they lie. Down they have come on all sides at the first earnest touch of autumn's wand, making a sound like rain. Or else it is after moist and rainy weather that we notice how great a fall of leaves there has been in the night, though it may not yet be the touch that loosens the rock maple leaf. The streets are thickly strewn with the trophies, and fallen elm leaves make a dark brown pavement under our feet. After some remarkably warm Indian summer day or days, I perceive that it is the unusual heat which, more than anything, causes the leaves to fall, there having been, perhaps, no frost nor rain for some time. The intense heat suddenly ripens and wilts them, just as it softens and ripens peaches and other fruits, and causes them to drop. The leaves of late red maples, still bright, strew the earth often crimson-spotted on a yellow ground, like some wild apples, though they preserve these bright colours on the ground but a day or two, especially if it rains. On causeways I go by trees here and there all bare and smoke-like, having lost their brilliant clothing, but there it lies, nearly as bright as ever, on the ground on one side, and making nearly as regular a figure as lately on the tree. I would rather say that I first observe the trees thus flat on the ground, like a permanent coloured shadow, and they suggest to look for the boughs that bore them. A queen might be proud to walk where these gallant trees have spread their bright cloaks in the mud. I see wagons roll over them as a shadow or reflection, and the drivers heed them just as little as they did their shadows before. Birds' nests in the huckleberry and other shrubs, and in trees, are already being filled with the withered leaves. So many have fallen in the woods that a squirrel cannot run after a falling nut without being heard. Boys are raking them in the streets, if only for the pleasure of dealing with such clean, crisp substances. Some sweep the paths scrupulously neat, and then stand to see the next breath strew them with new trophies. The swamp floor is thickly covered, and the Lycopodium lucidulum looks suddenly greener amid them. In dense woods they half cover pools that are three or four rods long. The other day I could hardly find a well-known spring, and 
even suspected that it had dried up, for it was completely concealed by freshly fallen leaves, and when I swept them aside and revealed it, it was like striking the earth with Aaron's rod for a new spring. Wet grounds about the edge of swamps look dry with them. At one swamp, where I was surveying, thinking to step on a leafy shore from a rail, I got into the water more than a foot deep. When I go to the river the day after the principal fall of leaves, the sixteenth, I find my boat all covered bottom and seats with the leaves of the golden willow under which it is moored, and I set sail with a cargo of them rustling under my feet. If I empty it, it will be full again to-morrow. I do not regard them as litter to be swept out, but accept them as suitable straw or matting for the bottom of my carriage. When I turn up into the mouth of the acibet, which is wooded, large fleets of leaves are floating on its surface, as it were getting out to sea, with room to tack. But next to the shore, a little further up, they are thicker than foam, quite concealing the water for a rod in width, under and amid the alders, button-bushes, and maples, still perfectly light and dry, with fibre unrelaxed and at a rocky bend where they are met and stopped by the morning wind, they sometimes form a broad and dense crescent quite across the river. When I turn my prow that way, and the wave which it makes strikes them, list what a pleasant rustling from these dry substances grating on one another. Often it is their undulation only which reveals the water beneath them. Also every motion of the wood-turtle on the shore is betrayed by their rustling there. Or even in mid-channel, when the wind rises, I hear them blown with a rustling sound. Higher up, they are slowly moving round and round in some great eddy which the river makes, as that at the leaning hemlocks, where the water is deep and the current is wearing into the bank. Perchance, in the afternoon of such a day, when the water is perfectly calm and full of reflections, I paddle gently down the main stream, and turning up the acibet, reach a quiet cove, where I unexpectedly find myself surrounded by myriads of leaves, like fellow voyagers, which seem to have the same purpose, or want of purpose, with myself. See this great fleet of scattered leaf-boats which we paddle amid, in this smooth river bay, each one curled up on every side by the sun's skill, each nerve a stiff spruce knee like boats of hide, and of all patterns, Charon's boat probably among the rest, and some with lofty prows and poops like the stately vessels of the ancients, scarcely moving in the sluggish current, like the great fleets, the dense Chinese cities of boats, with which you mingle on entering some great mart, some New York or Canton, which we are all steadily approaching together. How gently each has been deposited on the water! No violence has been used towards them yet, though perchance palpitating hearts were present at the launching. And painted ducks, too, the splendid wood-duck among the rest, often come to sail and float amid the painted leaves, barks of a nobler model still. What wholesome herb-drinks are to be had in the swamps now? What strong, medicinal, but rich scents from the decaying leaves? the rain falling on the freshly dried herbs and leaves, and filling the pools and ditches into which they have dropped, thus clean and rigid, will soon convert them into tea. Green, black, brown, and yellow teas 
of all degrees of strength, enough to set all nature a-gossiping. Whether we drink them or not, as yet, before their strength is drawn, these leaves, dried on great nature's coppers, are of such various pure and delicate tints as might make the fame of oriental teas. How they are mixed up, of all species, oak and maple and chestnut and birch! But nature is not cluttered with them. She is a perfect husbandman. She stores them all. Consider what a vast crop is thus annually shed on the earth. This, more than any mere grain or seed, is the great harvest of the year. The trees are now repaying the earth with interest, what they have taken from it. They are discounting. They are about to add a leaf's thickness to the depth of the soil. This is the beautiful way in which nature gets her muck. While I chaffer with this man and that, who talks to me about sulphur and the cost of carting, we are all the richer for their decay. I am more interested in this crop than in the English grass alone, or in the corn. It prepares the virgin mould for future cornfields and forests, on which the earth fattens. It keeps our homestead in good heart. For beautiful variety, no crop can be compared with this. Here it is not merely the plain yellow of the grains, but nearly all the colours that we know, the brightest blue not excepted, the early blushing maple, the poison sumach blazing its sins as scarlet, the mulberry ash, the rich chrome yellow of the poplars, the brilliant red huckleberry, with which the hills' backs are painted, like those of sheep. The frost touches them, and, with the slightest breath of returning day, or jarring of earth's axle, see in what showers they come floating down. The ground is all party-coloured with them, but they still live in the soil, whose fertility and bulk they increase, and in the forests that spring from it. They stoop to rise, to mount higher in coming years, by subtle chemistry, climbing by the sap in the trees, and the sapling's first fruits, thus shed, transmuted at last, may adorn its crown when, in after years, it has become the monarch of the forest. It is pleasant to walk over the beds of these fresh, crisp, and rustling leaves. How beautifully they go to their graves! How gently lay themselves down and turn to mould, painted of a thousand hues, and fit to make the beds of us living. So they troop to their last resting-place, light and frisky. They put on no weeds, but merrily they go scampering over the earth, selecting the spot, choosing a lot, ordering no iron fence, whispering all through the woods about it, some choosing the spot where the bodies of men are mouldering beneath and meeting them half-way. How many flutterings, before they rest quietly in their graves! They that soared so loftily, how contentedly they return to dust again, and are laid low, resigned to lie and decay at the foot of the tree, and afford nourishment to new generations of their kind, as well as to flutter on high. They teach us how to die. One wonders if the time will ever come when men, with their boasted faith in immortality, will lie down as gracefully and as ripe, with such an Indian summer serenity will shed their bodies as they do their hair and nails. When the leaves fall, the whole earth is a cemetery, pleasant to walk in. I love to wander and muse over them in their graves, 
here are no lying nor vain epitaphs what though you own no lot at mount auburn your lot is surely cast somewhere in this vast cemetery which has been consecrated from of old you need attend no auction to secure a place there is room enough here the loose strife shall bloom and the huckleberry bird sing over your bones the woodman and hunter shall be your sextons and the children shall tread upon the borders as much as they will let us walk in the cemetery of the leaves this is your true greenwood cemetery the end of fallen leaves by henry david thoreau